Welcome to the Top Order Podcast. A snappy this week in cricket. We've got New Zealand news. The squad's picked for the games against the Netherlands. Auckland's still on fire. We've got West Indies and England. Women's World Cup cricket galore. We've got Pakistan versus Australia questions, including why Manus Labashan should never be Australian captain, coming hot off the presses from our Queensland correspondent, Michael Baldwin. All coming up on the Top Order Podcast. One of those isn't real, by the way. Stay tuned. <laughs> We'll start in New Zealand. Squads for the New Zealand 11 games and then the Black Caps Netherlands um, picked. A bit of conjecture on our socials, Lippy, around Ross Taylor's fanfare being perhaps ruined by some of those IPL players and guys he's played a lot of cricket with missing from those sides. But look, it's got to be good to get some more cricket squeezed out of this New Zealand summer, which has been a pretty good one. Well, it's been it's been a good one in terms of uh, weather, perhaps, but yeah, in terms of the cricket, we haven't seen a lot of it. And, it, and as you say, getting uh, just getting these games in is sort of a, a plus for for New Zealand for the fact that uh, you know we're going to get to see some some black caps playing. We're obviously seeing the the women's World Cup and the white ferns. You know, we're in a situation where I, I, don't, I haven't done the count of days, but we might end up seeing more white ferns days of cricket, uh, or at least games when you you think about the Test cricket that lasts a bit longer than. Uh, than, the, than the Black Caps, which is a, a huge turn-up uh, from, from what you normally see. But, yeah, look, this New Zealand squad to face the Netherlands, I, I actually think it's, uh, you know, for, firstly just thanks to New Zealand Cricket for doing us a solid and actually naming the team on the day we were going to record the podcast. It's been a... Uh, we seem to, every single time we record a podcast, they name it the day after, which is... Uh, but changed this time, which is great. But I actually think it's a really conservative side. You know, there's been a lot of focus on uh, the fact that Michael Bracewell will probably make his debut it seems to that he uh has the inside running uh for both the the odis and the the t20 squad seems like dane cleaver will probably make his t20 debut in the the only one t20 game uh and yeah we've we've sort of seen uh, a return then for a lot of fringe players uh, the likes of uh will young uh doug bracewell blair tickner colin de gronholm mark chapman Ben Sears in the T20, who I'm actually really excited about. I think he's going to be a, a crucial player for New Zealand for, you know, when we're thinking about some of these bowlers that are going to move on at some point, the Bolts, the Southies, the the Wagners and stuff. What what Ben Sears can develop into could be quite interesting for New Zealand. But but why don't we start there Because with the Ross Taylor stuff? Because I actually, yeah, it's an interesting one. It hadn't, to be fair, dawned on me a, a huge amount, um, the, the negativity. But when I posted the sides... On our social channels, quite a few of our listeners did mention the fact that, you know, is, is this a bit disappointing and, and a bit disrespectful, I guess, to Ross that, you know, we have released the, the 12 IPL players that are that are going. They're going to be able to go and, and not feature in the side to face the Netherlands, which is actually ODIs that these count towards the, the World Cup qualification. So, yeah, there's, it means that the likes of Kane and, and Trent Bolt, Tim Southey, guys that have been there with Ross for a long part of his career and now not going to be there for his finale. Yeah, I guess for me, it's I feel like it's more disrespectful maybe to the Netherlands mm. that um, we've released these players to go over and um, play franchise cricket instead of playing for their country against um, against Netherlands. But I, I don't I don't have a have a massive issue with it from a New Zealand side, apart New Zealand point of view or a Ross Taylor point of view. Mm. He got his send off in the Test matches. It's kind of been the summer of Ross Taylor uh, in terms of. You're thinking about him and, and celebrating his place in the New Zealand team. So I don't feel so bad about that, but uh, there's a little bit of disrespect for the opposition there for me. 
I think it'll be a little bit sad that he won't play his last game of international cricket with Kane by his side. I think that's that's probably the one that he he, he has played a lot of Test cricket with. Is obviously captain New Zealand, and now t- Kane's taken that reins. You know, Brendan McCullum in between, but he'll still have a lot of the guys that he has used to playing international cricket with. Guptill's still there, you know, De Grandholm's still there, and others as well. So yeah, it's not Latham, like it's going to be yeah, not Latham and Nichols in the one day. So it's not like he's going to be there by himself. It's Ross Taylor and a bunch of young guys who are just coming through. I also don't think it's all that disrespectful to the Netherlands. New Zealand didn't get all that much say in scheduling the series. They've not done Netherlands a favour, but scheduling this series with the Netherlands, Netherlands will gain more from it than New Zealand will. I just think that you can't not release your players to the IPL. If they're going to earn several hundred thousand dollars, some of them upwards of a million dollars in their long-term contracts, they only get all of that money if they play. They don't get that money if they don't play. So New Zealand cricket kind of have to release their their premier players to go and play the IPL, I think. And unfortunately, that means that the Netherlands will miss out on getting to play those kind of guys. I actually think it will bring the sides closer together and will make a more exciting series as a result. Australia haven't released their players for the IPL? That's, the IPL. That, that, is, that is true. Um, I think Australia are in slightly different position financially in terms of the amount of money that their players are on and the di- and the price differential between the amount of money those guys make at the IPL and the amount of money that they make domestically. I mean, Glenn Maxwell's still on pretty big money and a lot of those Aussie guys are on pretty big money at the IPL, but Pat Cummins is on pretty big money as Australian captain too. So, you know, there is that that slight difference in terms of those price points. And I take, I take your point. Australia have chosen not to let their players go to the IPL. South Africa have got uh, controversy going on with their player releases as well. I just think this is a shrewd move from New Zealand's point of view. I think it is a, a worthwhile point there that uh, that New Zealand's situation is very different and more, I would say, in terms of opportunity because we haven't been shown the respect, I guess, in the IPL that our players haven't been picked up in the past. And for the fact that 12 of them get to go into this tournament now and, and I suppose put themselves in that shop window to try and be there long term, I think is a is a big deal as much as I sort of cringe when I look at the sides that, you know, that, that they have to miss out on playing for their country. It's, uh, it's, it's yeah, it's disappointing. The, the one thing I will note about this side, the, the surprise and something we talked about a bit earlier in, in the, the season, there's no George Worker. And, and I, I just think, you know, what, what does that guy have to do uh, to, to put himself in this side? I don't know necessarily who would miss out for him. Maybe it's a Will Young, uh, who is someone who, because I think Worker is probably fighting for that top order spot. And, you know, when you look at that side, it's Guptill, Nichols, uh, are the incumbents and, and players that, you know, we haven't played a lot of one-day cricket for a long time, but players that have done a decent job for us and don't really deserve to do to lose their spots. But Young is someone who played a bit in Bangladesh, but, yeah, you know, didn't have the greatest test series, obviously, as we uh, talked about. And, you know, maybe he'd have been better just to play Plunkett Shield and, and kind of reward George Worker for the season that he's had. I completely agree. I think he deserved to, to get picked. I was thinking maybe they went for maybe a younger contingent of players Look, thinking for the future is, is um, you know, Baldi, I'm a big Baldi's, fan of. Baldi's yep, a big, big fan. fan of. Yep. But aside from Ben Sears, everybody in that in both of those squads is over 27. Yep. Um, most of them are over 30. So yeah, I, I'm not 100 percent sure why Worker didn't get that uh, opportunity, which is a shame. I would have liked to see him in there because they rewarded Michael Bracewell for a good domestic season. They rewarded Dane Cleaver for a good domestic season. Both of those guys at the top of the run charts. But George Worker has been absolutely what? What's your phrase, Adam? Tearing up trees, tearing down trees. Up trees. That's the one. He's been doing that. All sorts of things with trees over the last few <laughs> few few games. 
And for for Auckland, he deserves to be there. He really does. He should be in that squad. Yeah, and then Auckland side's just been unbelievable. You know, they they just continue their un, unbelievable run of form, and uh, you know they they look to they've picked up seventy two out of a possible eighty Plunkett Shield points after winning the Ford Trophy. They're just on an absolute tear at the moment. Uh, and a quick shout out for Dane Cleaver, who's been picked. Um, any I guess disappointment we've not seen a guy that you know reasonably well, Cam Fletcher, get a go. The stats probably do favour Cleaver over the course of his career. Yeah, I, I think this is maybe a chance for them both to get, you know, in the environment. Um, I think if you're you're looking at the T20 side, it, I mean, Cam did a great job f- as the finisher for Canterbury. You know, he, he won them games in the Super Smash. Exactly. He's been and he's been great. I think it would have been really hard to to split them. I think getting Cam in the environment for the Test side. You know, maybe they've shown their colours there that that's where they see Cam's lean towards the, the red ball backup and Dane Cleaver as the, the white ball backup. Who knows? We You know, I guess we'll see as, as time goes on there. But, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I would have... I would have been fascinated to see what they did if Tim Seifert was available because, yeah, as I've said many times, I think in my head, Cleaver and... Uh, and Cam Fletcher have both sort of jumped Seifert on on, on where they form. are, yeah, on, on current form, on yeah. current form. So um, yeah, it'll be. It, I mean, unfortunately for him, it's one T twenty. So um, you know, he doesn't get a huge amount of chance to to show what he can do. But hopefully, he does get it, get a knock, and uh, and put his best foot forward. Well, but got to hope it doesn't rain um, and uh, curtail um, that. Let's go somewhere where it's very unlikely to rain, and that's Barbados, Bridgetown to be precise. West Indies, England kicking off their second test in their three-match series later on this evening, New Zealand time. Raj, you've got a couple of takes on on this series, I think. Uh, I wasn't expecting you to come to me, but uh, that's good. I, I guess... I'll probably want to start with the takeaways from for each team. Uh, feel free to jump in, fellas. But for me, the the one of the big takeaways was Johnny Bairstow uh, in that first innings. England were actually in real trouble. I um I, I think Binksy, you texted me as soon as you you woke up and saw um forty for four, and then Ben Folks was was out. Uh, yeah, he was, the first yeah. ball that you saw. But Johnny Bairstow <laughs> did a did a great job rescuing that innings, and he really set up that that. Well, the draw, unfortunately, for for England, but he uh, really got them back into that game where they could have been in a really precarious position. England won the toss, and I think they actually made the correct decision to bat first on that wicket. Mm. They knew it was going to be a bit tacky, but were hoping that it was. They were hoping that it would deteriorate a bit more towards the end of the end of the, the game. So I don't have a problem with those decisions. You're, you're talking there about pitches and stuff. There's been a lot of chat about pitches lately. You know, this Pakistan-Australia series, certainly the first test that, that uh, you know, a lot of criticism there. We obviously know about when, those games in India where, you know, they're very spin-friendly. I have seen a bit of criticism about this pitch, too, too dead, too placid. I've been away the last three or four days. I haven't seen a huge amount of, of these uh, recent tests any comments on that? Was it was it a boring game? I, you know, I never find Test cricket boring when there's runs being scored, uh, Lippy. But um, <laughs> just over the last little while, we've seen a little bit of a resurgence in the Caribbean where they are making very hard pitches. Mm. Sometimes they get it wrong a little bit when they had a lot of bit of, a lot of grass for that South African series, but then they also have uh, one. They've had seri- they've had pitches in the past where they've just started crumbling early. You know, early day three, late day two. But I think they're actually starting to get back into that 
we want to get some big fast bowlers. We need hard pitches to play on throughout the Caribbean, and that's what they're trying to do. They have got it wrong in the past. The Sri Lanka series that was in the West Indies, I believe that was a pretty drawn series as well, pretty um, long, drawn-out kind of game as was this one. I, I don't see it changing from that perspective. They'll probably want a little bit more deterioration, but when West Indies are picking one spinner, you know, right from the start, and uh, you know, uh, in uh, Versami Pamal there, who's not really a known quantity uh, in the spin ranks in terms of internationally, anyway, you can see where their tactics are from that, that side of the ball, anyway. And uh, and look, uh, you you touched on it a little bit there, but who who do you think kind of takes the the moral victory out of this? You know, you, you look at we talked before the tournament, we or before the series, we gave our predictions on who was going to win, and it was quite mixed in terms of uh, what we think. Who who actually sort of comes out of this game and goes, okay, now we, we're on the front foot to go towards the next test? Zach Crawley. <laughs> he got 100 in the second innings. He's the first England opener since I think Rory Burns got a big 130-odd. 132. Uh, in, in, in a game. Of, he needed uh, to make it a bigger one, I think. He needed to get eight more runs, I think, and there was a there was, there was was bets being paid. I think Zach Crawley has has really nailed down his spot at the top of the order for England. The Joe Root experiment batting at number three seems to have worked. He's got his first hundred for 2022, picking up. Did he, did he not get any hundreds uh, where he was before? Well, no, he got six last year and, and batting at four. But what I'm saying is, he's he's picked up a hundred. Like that looks like he's going to be still comfortable there. It's not going to make much difference if he bats at three and four. Bearstow at six. The England side are starting to improve. Alex Lee's didn't have a great test, but you know, look, there's plenty of time for him to to get his feet under him as far as Test cricket's concerned. So I think that top order for England, big win. I guess I, I think that the honours were shared uh, mostly for both teams, but I actually want to highlight where I think a backward step was taken and I think that the West Indies oh, sorry the English bowlers I think struggled a little bit uh, definitely Wokes away from home there's a lot of calls now maybe that he shouldn't be playing uh, away from or maybe not first picked uh, Overton they've got injuries now who, who Mark Wood I believe is injured they've got Mahmood coming in what do you make of all that, Binksy? Ollie Robinson is out for the second test, as I, as I understand as well, Adam. Yes, England have a thing of nine the 11 for the test match that's just about to take place in Bridgetown, Barbados, and yeah, you're dead right. So keep Mahmood coming in for Mark Wood is the only change to that side. Um, so yeah, no Ollie Robinson, not uh, deemed to have got his loads up, or, or maybe they don't think he's the right... Um, guy to come in. I'm not sure how you uh, make that mathematics when you're opening bowling attack took three wickets at 100 and uh, for 150 runs average of over 50. Didn't take a wicket with the new ball. Didn't take all. a wicket with the new ball. Um, so look, at some questions. If if I really, if I'm honest, and I look at um, where the honours were in that, England could have uh, you know, could have gone on and batted a little bit longer um, and really batted West Indies completely out of that um, out of that game. And um, they had them, you know, four down, 70 overs. The pitch was still pretty flat at that particular particular point um so, you know i think if they hadn't lost the, uh, the a lot of time to rain during the course of the game um i do think it would have been a result and i do think england would have come out on top of that because they wouldn't have needed to go out and do what they did um on that final morning which was throw the bat a little bit a breezy innings of 37 from dan lawrence and then um yeah a bit of slogging um saw them declare the innings 349 for six so i, I think they had to put a substantial lead on the west indies and, and had an opportunity to bowl them out with a bit more time in the game so i don't buy that um that 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 was, uh, yeah, it was sort of honours even. But I, I am going to say that I've still got some major concerns and was talking to Raj on the way up, actually. Interesting that in this day and age, when a guy goes down injured, you call a replacement in straight away. <laughs> England haven't done that because, well, maybe Stuart Broad and Jimmy Anderson have both got their 
phones off because um, they're pretty <laughs> pissed off. But yeah, um, we've said enough about that over the course of the last uh, the last several weeks. Also, just before we close off on on, on that series for now, there was some interesting uh, media that came out from Carlos Braithwaite uh, just around the, uh, in summary, it was basically saying England should have probably, you know, decided to call the draw a bit earlier than they did. It went all the way down to the last over, I believe. Um, And he sees it as a sign of disrespect, thinking that, uh, you know, England had a chance all the way up until that point. What What do you guys make of it, anybody? I mean, the last over maybe uh, is taking it too far, but I, I, I think you, you give yourself a chance at, at all times. So I mean, what, what's the point in playing four days, four and you know, four and two thirds of a day, and then going, oh well, you know, we've got them four down, we can't take six wickets in the last session. I, I yeah, I don't don't really subscribe to that theory. I think you've got to give yourself the best opportunity and really just go for it. I don't I don't really see how that's disrespectful to anyone if you think about. Some of the games where, you know, so New Zealand, that game against Pakistan where we went right down to the wire and that and took wickets right at the death and that proved to be a really, really valuable, you know, that got us to the World Test Championship final in the end. So I think you've got to give yourself the best chance and, you know, what? yeah, what's the point in playing all these other days if you're not going to uh, go all the way to the end? I can see where Carlos Brathwaite is coming from, but... I, I think back to the Michael Clark game against India where he took, so I think he took six for nine in the yeah. second innings, whatever it was, but he took like three or four wickets like in the last couple of overs of the day. So it can happen. In this particular instance, Carlos Braithwaite is right in that there wasn't a lot happening in the game. Both batters were set, etc. I get it. I've always been taught as an Australian that you play until the very end. It doesn't matter if the opposition has nine, de- nine wickets to go and they need one run to win. You bust your hump until the winning run is scored, and then that's the end of the game. So I get where Carlos Brathwaite is coming from. I would want to play right till the end of the game until I couldn't possibly win and then shake hands. Yeah, the, the only thing for me is that, um, look, I think England are trying to set a little bit of a, a marker, not necessarily against the West Indies, but more around the way that they want to go and play their cricket um, and build a culture and build an attitude. And the surprising thing for me was that Ben Stokes bowled so many overs in that second innings, 13 having bowled 20-odd in the first. And I've got to say, you carry on until um, until almost the end of, of the game. I don't, you know, have any issue with shaking hands 15 minutes early, potentially. But maybe they just thought, do you know what? Jack Leach is in a little bit of rhythm. It can do him the world of good if he picks up four for here instead of three for. Um, same with, you know, a Craig Overton, who's, you know, only taken one wicket in the game up until that point. So, look, I don't have a problem with it, but to be perfectly honest, and I don't think it would have mattered who they'd have been playing. I think they'd have carried on um, until the bitter end. Lots of fans in the ground as well. Um, felt more like Trent Bridge, um, I, I think, than the West Indies was one of the comments from the, the West Indian players as well. Almost like a home test um, with all that visiting support at the Allen Sanford Ground in North Sound, um, Antigua. Let's move on. We've got Women's World Cup cricket galore. The less we dwell on um, England, the better, although they have got over the line today against India to keep their tournament alive. But what to make of the West Indies? Australia still red-hot favourites and, and South Africa have been winning as well. Yeah, geez, I, I, don't, I mean, where, where do we start? I mean, I, my obviously my focus is with the White Ferns and they've been, you, you know, I actually think, uh, you know, they've they had that heavy loss to Australia and probably that's... That's the place we have to start because it's the most notable performance. But, you know, I think since we last recorded, they also beat India. India's been, you know, getting thumped or thumping the other team, you know, throughout this whole tournament. But, 
Yeah, I think for New Zealand, it's a matter of not panicking from that Australia result. When when you look at when I look at that Australian side, they're just an unbelievable cricket side. It, it actually, as much as we want to build up this tournament, I, I, I think you're playing to to lose. You know, as Baldy would say, you're playing for the right to lose to Australia in this final. As as much as uh, Baldy's not going to bite at that. Yeah, we yeah. know it. I know he's not, but but really, you know, you look at that Australian side. They they play Darcy Brown against New Zealand, knocks off the top of the the order, and she's not even picked for the next game because Jess Johnson, who's the world number one ODI bowler, comes back because she was left out of the side against New Zealand because of the balance of the side. You know, New Zealand had chances in that game to restrict Australia. That Australian side is just absolute quality. And do you think that's probably? one of the most painful aspects of it is that that first, you know, 25 overs of that game, we really were in it until Australia just sort of accelerated away um, in, in the back half of their batting innings and just finished it off with the ball. Yeah, I, I think it is disappointing that we didn't restrict Australia to a to a lesser total there. I mean, you know, New Zealand had the chances, as you say. Perry and Mooney were going well there. Amelia Kerr picked up the wicket of Mooney at, at the perfect time, just when they were building a partnership. And then, you know, but then Talia McGrath comes in, gets a 50, and then Ash Gardner just goes ballistic at the end, 48 off 18 balls. I think she was on track for the fastest 50 in, in women's ODIs. You know, there's just so much talent in that side. And I think New Zealand, I, when this, you know, if, if this podcast comes out tomorrow in New Zealand time, it will be a, a Thursday and New Zealand will be playing South Africa. And, and what I feel, you know, New Zealand's got South Africa next and then England at the weekend. And those two games are going to determine... Uh, how our tournament goes. If we can win, probably two. If we can win both of them, we'll be in the semi-finals. If we can win one, we're a chance because the rest of this tournament is going topsy turvy. And they just have to say we had a bad day against Australia, but that Australian side is good, and we, you know, we just have to keep doing what we've been doing well in the other parts of the tournament. Let's just have a quick look at the table now. Uh, Wednesday night, sixteenth of March, Australia four and zero, South Africa surprise packet. Let's talk about them. A little bit three and zero have started the tournament really well, and then we've got three teams at two and two. We've got India third by virtue of a, a reasonable net run rate, then New Zealand in fourth spot, a negative 0.25 net run rate, and then the West Indies started like a house on fire and have lost their last two on the trot, and they're now sitting in fifth with a net run rate of minus 1.23. Then England um, just off the pace that they, they won today to get their campaign underway. They're one and three, but with a positive net runway, and then Bangladesh and Pakistan, uh, as I think most people would have expected, filling out positions seven and eight on the table. But those games, South Africa, New Zealand, New Zealand, England, are are absolutely crucial. England have to win out from here, so England have to win against New Zealand to stay alive, to get to four and three, because they've got uh, Bangladesh and Pakistan. So you would think that England by virtue of having a positive net run rate, if they can win three, be four and three with a decent net run rate, put themselves right in the reckoning. One more loss for England, I think, and they're out. But this this congested nature of the table here, India, New Zealand, West Indies, all round about here or there, the next four or five days is going to be really telling in terms of the fortunes of this tournament. Oh, it's and it, it, it's exciting in that way that the yeah this uh, we've seen so many games that are. You, you, yeah, you, you don't know what's going to happen. And, and and even Bangladesh and Pakistan, who've been pretty, you know... that They haven't been, got the results. They haven't got the results, but I think they've been pretty good and yep. they've pushed a lot of those sides. And, I mean, you mentioned South Africa as a, as a bit of a surprise. The three sides that, that, you know, 
two of the sides that they've beaten are Bangladesh and Pakistan. So the business end of their tournament is about to happen. A, yep. a nice win against England, you know, that's a, that's a big win in the, the context because of all the, the things that you've outlined. But I don't think it's a massive surprise that, that they're right in the mix. And, you know, that they're a very good side and, and they've got a lot of players up and down that lineup that feature in, you know, tournaments all around the world. So, yeah, I... I, I it's really, really hard to predict what's going to happen for the for those final three spots. I think for um, for the playoffs in that top four. We'll move on to a test match that is still going on. Um, look, we'll probably make some bold predictions here, and some of us will be horribly wrong. But Australia, Pakistan, Pakistan, two hundred and ninety nine for four, with a, a very unlikely two hundred and seven runs to get. Um, with 43 overs remaining, so just over, or around about five and over um, required. But Babar Azam going quite well, 160 um, quite not well. out. <laughs> All right, very well, in fact. Um, going very, very well. That's a big 100. Um, that's a big 100. But Australia will just about, I think, um, yeah, they'll, they won't get another new ball, will they? I don't think in time. Um, they might so get we'll, one right we'll, in. Yeah, yep. they might get a, a few overs with a new ball, like 160 overs or thereabouts. But is that going to be enough for them to get over the line in this test match, do we think? Well, surely, you know, they get to tee here, fall down, you just call it, don't you? That game draw? <laughs> Isn't it? Wouldn't Carlos Brathwaite just call the game? It's disrespectful to do otherwise. I think we're finding a lot about the legacy of one goat at the moment in the series in Pakistan, Nathan Lyon has not yet bowled Australia to victory. And that will be the criticism that people will be hanging on Nathan Lyon. Nathan Lyon uh, critiques, or, or maybe not Nathan Lyon fans, I don't know what those people would be, um, <laughs> it'd be probably be me, would be saying Nathan Lyon should be bowling Australia to, vic to victory on the fifth day of the test in Pakistan. That's why we took him to Pakistan as our premier spinner, greatest off spinner of all time for Australia. He should be the one, not just going at 1.8 runs and over or whatever it is, he should be the one getting a big bag of wickets, four wickets, five wickets on the last day, bowling Australia to victory. If that happens, full credit to him. He's done his job and he's done Australia proud. If not, then this is just one of those things where you know he's probably not living up to the expectations that he'll be setting on himself. And it will be really disappointing if Australia don't win from here. So I just want to ask some questions around tactics, tactics mm -hmm. uh, from Australia in this test so far. So they won the toss uh, on, a, on a State Highway 1, and um, <laughs> they batted for 189 overs. So that's two days and nine overs that they batted for. Is that something that you see as a incredible alpha kind of move, or is that silly? They should have realised that they were going to have to bat again because they didn't want to bat last in the test. What do you make of that? They either had to bet once or declare earlier, in my view. So if Australia had decided they were only going to bat once and then they bowled Pakistan out for 130-odd or 148 or whatever it was in that first innings and still had a giant first innings lead, then they need to, then they need to set the, the follow-on and enforce the follow-on, knowing that Pakistan would have to get 400-plus, which they still haven't quite got yet, but, you know, it would take some batting to make Australia bat again. So they either had to declare sooner or enforce the follow-on. They do one of those two things, and they didn't. Very, very difficult to criticise Pat Cummins as a captain at the moment. Lots of people are big, big fans. But I think that if Australia don't win this test, 
you could point to that decision to either not enforce the follow-on, having bowled Pakistan out for 140, or batted on into the third day and not declared an hour before dinner, uh, sorry, an hour before stumps on day two as being the difference point in this match. It's an interesting that you link the two of those decisions together because in a lot of the conversation, I haven't actually heard people do that. People have been mainly saying, oh, well, just you've got to enforce the follow-on, you've got to enforce the follow-on, or, you know, the other way around. But nobody's actually linked it to the fact that if you're going to bat for that long to start with, that's why you have to enforce the follow-on. And, yeah, I think that's a, a very valid point. Yeah, the, the, the strange thing for me with that decision is there was, look, I guess the stats and, and the stats around teams enforcing the follow-on, and I think um, – Australia have been notoriously shy to do that since Absolutely getting their yes. asses handed to them in India after yep. uh, that very, very famous test match. I think it was... 04 from memory. Yeah, Vivian like Schlaxman got um, a, a massive, massive double something. Anyway, he got lots and lots of runs. The thing that surprised me, though, is that we can kind of look back and look at the congested nature of this series, but relatively back-to-back test matches. But when you actually examine that with a bit of forensic detail, Mitchell Stark only bowls seven overs and Josh Hazelwood five overs um, and Pat Cummins four overs in that Pakistan second innings in the first test match. And then they only bowl 53 overs as a bowling unit um, against Pakistan to bowl them out for 148. So it wasn't as if their seamers had come off. um, If you look at the scorecard without going into the detail of it, oh yeah, well, they were bowling a couple of days ago against a Pakistan batting lineup that managed to amass 250 odd for none. Um, they were, but they're you know their main bowlers. No workload issues. No workload issues. So yeah, I, I I've got to take a little bit of a point that you can criticise Pat Cummins uh, a little bit for this, regardless of whether he's the golden boy of Australian cricket at the moment, but because he's had an opportunity there, I think to you know to potentially win the series and, and hasn't um, put the foot on the throat. Well, at this point, they could still win. I mean, oh, you, they could, yeah, by two. You guys are talking about, uh, yeah, the fact that uh, they haven't, then, then that they're not going to win this game. Do, do you actually, you know, let, let's put your your neck on the line here. Do you actually think that they they're going to do this, or is this just? I mean, I think we also have to give an enormous amount of credit to Pakistan for yeah. for turning this around. I mean, 148 all out. They they batted really poorly from the the bits and pieces that I have seen. Almost all the dismissals looked like they were dismissals that could have been avoided. There was two runouts. There was, you know, they're just thrashing at things outside off stump. It's just a lot of it was bad batting. But you know, to to as much as you want to say, look, you know, you you got to enforce a follow on. Getting out there and having to stand out in the field and stuff again, it's demoralizing. It's absolutely demoralizing. And then they're going in and they've got to know, well, we've got to bat for 180 overs or however long it was to try and even just save this game. You know, if they can do, if they can pull this off and, and draw, I mean, Barbara Azam is on 160 odd at the moment. It'd be a phenomenal effort. Well, to save this game, they're going to have to bat 170 overs. They bat 80 overs on that first day on day four mm. just to get to day five so it's been a massive effort to get there again we're seeing this blueprint if i go back to the new zealand when that new zealand was in australia mm. and new zealand bowled on every single day of that tour when you have people out in the field for such a long time especially in the subcontinent where it's not cold um you see the effects 184 that they were gone in in, in their first innings uh, for Pakistan. Unfortunately, I think that's where you got to pull the trigger and put them back in. But it's easy to say that when in, in hindsight, and from a from a room that's not nearly as warm Correct. or as, as yeah. humid as it is in Pakistan, I get it. But 
that's why they're test cricketers, right? That's why you're there. That's why you're in peak physical fitness. That's why you train and do all of that preparation so that when the opportunity arises and you get 550 on the board or you get 480 for seven and you bowl the side out for 140, you bang them back in and you go, right, you want to make us bat again on the last day? You get 450 plus and we're coming at you. And we've got Lyon and we've got Schwepson and we've got Green and we've got Marnus and we've got Smith. We've got all these guys ready to go. You do the hard work and make us bat again rather than us scoring 90 cheap runs and then making you bat for 170 overs. I, I think Australia are historically too shy of enforcing the follow-on. There's been a few times that they really, really should have done it and didn't, and it's cost them tests in the past, and I think it could potentially cost them again. Bubba Razam is batting beautifully. 351 balls doesn't look like getting out, and if we keep dropping catches at slip, we're never going to get him out. And, uh, that, there's the moz. <laughs> I actually, just to highlight a couple of players from this test match, I really enjoyed um, Kawaja's innings in the first innings, 160. Only 140 short for you there, Binksy. Mate, he's let me down twice. He's got in twice and let me down. He's almost got 300 runs in the series, though. That, uh, yeah, if, I guess, you know, we you, you criticise me for giving people credit when they uh, potentially don't deserve it. He hasn't got anywhere near 300, but I'll, I will give you a lot of credit that he's performing strongly in the series. Very very similar to some of my other predictions that were almost right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, Nathan Lyon, watch. Uh, there is a note here to look at his... Uh, current stats, but I think he's well over 40. Uh, he's well over 40. I'll just see if I can find the series home and I'll see if I can get some uh, live series stats. Well, while while well, I do that, why don't you guys move on? Well, why, while we... While you look at that ball there, I'd be keen to hear what you think about Schwepson because there was, there's been a lot of excitement, I suppose, from your corner and, and from lots of parts of the media, Australian media, that you know he's someone who's been waiting a long time for an opportunity and, and all of this. What have you thought of the way that he's bowled? You know, obviously none for 90 so far in the second innings. Took a couple of wickets in that first innings. Nice to, to get Barbara's arm as your first one, I'm sure. But, yeah, what have you made of his debut so far? I mean, it's a debut that's not remarkable, but mm. it's a solid debut. I mean, if you're relying on your debutante to bowl you to victory in the in his first test match, then you've got something wrong with your, with your game plan, right? Nathan Lyon is the guy who should be taking the ball by the horns and be going, right, I'm going to bowl this to victory. Mitchell, you come with me, pitch in a couple of wickets here or there, and that's what, it, that's what he's got to do. I've been really happy with his contribution in the first innings. Nine overs for 32 has been a good contribution. If he picks up a wicket here in the back end of the day, then I think it will be a really, really good debut for him. If he gets none for and goes for a sidecar, i.e. 100 plus, then it won't be particularly pleasant in the second innings. Why is that a sidecar? I've never understood that reference. No idea. No idea. Couldn't explain the history of, of sidecar. But he's, yeah, none for 91 in the second innings. He is there as a second option, and he's bowled pretty well so far for me. He hasn't been, you know, bowling Australia to victory yet. Raj, I want to get your opinion here on, on the Test match because I know you've talked a bit about how you enjoy watching these roads and uh, and the runs being piled on. Baldy's off, obviously just trying to do these tricks here as we talk to get a few wickets, play down Australia's side. If you look through the whole Test match and even you know the, the entire series so far, it's been an incredibly difficult one for bowlers to get wickets. Is he being too harsh on line here? You know, they, it's not like the spinners took all the, you know, that 148 was all the seamers taking the wickets in, in that series. Is it just a, a sort of pitch and, and a, a game where the spinners, they don't necessarily need to take wickets just because it's day five and day four. Is Are we doing them a bit of a disservice here and, or is Baldy just playing mind games? 
Um, I wouldn't put a passport playing mind games. I think that this is this is part of a bigger issue for Nathan Lyon. It's not just this series. Mm. If you look back through his recent series, they haven't been great, including the that flagship one of India in Australia, where he, he didn't bowl well. I think he averaged 50, 55. Averaging 55. 105 in this Test Match series live so far. So I think while, while you know, it, it's probably a little bit harsh to be singling him out here, as Baldy said, when you are this premier spinner in your side, you're going to the subcontinent, you get to bowl in the fourth innings, I feel like you probably should be making a bit more of an impact. Can I, can I just make a comparison? In terms of that those marquee series where Nathan Lyon has come up short, and I don't want to be overly critical of Nathan Lyon because he did bowl well against New Zealand and he did bowl well last summer in the Ashes. He had good returns. But against Ashwin, Ashwin outplayed him. In this particular series, Norman Ali is the leading wicket taker in the series, seven wickets at 35. Nathan Lyon has three wickets at 105. So on both of those two big ticket occasions, his opposite number has outperformed him. I get it if it was a case of all of the seamers took wickets and none of the spinners did. That's that's totally fine. You can kind of see that the conditions played a part. But in this particular instance, Nolman Ali is by far the leading wicket taker in this series, averaging under 35. I think he's the only one other than Fahim to average under 35. So bowling is difficult, but Manas is averaging 105 with the ball. And to be fair, Sajid Khan from Pakistan is averaging 106. So, you know, like there's not a lot of there's not a lot of return for seamers. But if he's that good, if he's the GOAT, he should be a lot closer to 35 than 105. Well, I think that probably just about wraps up this episode of the pod as Pakistan reached 304 um, for four. I think one thing is for sure with the last um, several overs uh, going for just um, six runs in total, Pakistan not going to be chasing these runs down. So there's only two results I think on offer here and that is around the table an unlikely Australian um, victory or more likely uh, another draw on State Highway um, one in Karachi. We will be back on the Top Order podcast in your feed very, very soon because there's lots and lots more cricket. You'll have seen our IPL um, preview as well pop up in your feed. Please give us a like or a subscribe. Direct friends, family and cricketers to the podcast and we'd be very, very appreciative. But for now, it's good night and God bless from us here in Auckland. Good night. See you soon. <laughs>